Let us open our Bibles to the letter of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. And tonight we will remind ourselves how the gospel equip us to face trials, facing trials. James 1, 2 to 12. James 1, 2 to 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun riseth with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Let us pray once again, asking for God's help. Oh God, there is still sin in us. And also we, we are just men and women. We are not angels. We do not have supernatural abilities. We are creatures very weak, fragile creatures in your hands. And we desperately need, we desperately need to be strengthened, to be challenged by the power of 
of Scripture. And at the same time, we need to be comforted by the gospel. So please, tonight, bring us down through your law and raise us up through your grace in the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This text would teach us that we must face our trials with perseverance until the end. Let me say that again. This text will teach us that you, Christian, must face trials with perseverance until the end. To do that, he will give us the right attitude that we should have in trials. Then will give us the argument, and then the approach, and then archetypes, so that we can face our trials with perseverance until the end. The attitude, the argument, the approach, and the archetypes. So let us see first the attitude. Verse 2. Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Can you see the attitude there? It's pretty clear, isn't it? James commands us. What is the command? Count in what? Joy. Some joy, certain joy. No, it says all joy. And the meaning here is exceeding joy. And whenever what? Whenever you fall into some trials? Is that what the text says? No, it's, the verse says into few trials. Is that the way that James writes? No. Various kinds of trials. You can name it, right? Family trials, marriage trials, health trials, church trials, state social trials, persecution, which is probably the case here in this letter, Christian being persecuted because of their faith, job trials, any kind. Now I want you to pay attention that the attitude that he is telling us here is not a suggestion. He's not recommending us to have joy in our troubles. It's an order it's a command. It's an imperative. In the midst of our sorrow, he's saying, you need, Christian, to find a window or a channel of joy. And I think this is very serious. Very serious joy. Because it is hard. Because James is saying to us, rejoice in your affliction. Rejoice in your cancer. Rejoice in your failure. Rejoice in your sickness. Rejoice in your pain. Rejoice in your unemployment. Rejoice in your disappointments. Rejoice in your loneliness. Rejoice 
rejoice. It reminds me of a sociologist, Philip Riff, who once said, in the past, people did not go to church to be made happy, but to have their miseries explained to them. I think because of texts like this. In the past, people did not go to church to be made happy, but to have their miseries explained to them. Well, I think James goes even deeper than Philip Riff. Because he's telling us, us churchgoers, Christians, true Christians, genuine Christians, to find joy in our miseries. You see how deep this is? How serious this is? How hard this is? It's, it's almost unbelievable. It's to be made happy in our miseries. I know this is not natural to us as simple people, and I feel how hard this is. I'm trying to convey my feeling to you because I know for me it's, it's overwhelming. But let me give you a perspective that uh, it may be helpful for us to obey this attitude, this command. Have you noticed that many times in our lives we are more unha unhappy, more heartbroken, and more down in our suffering than in our sins? I have. We are more sorrowful, have more grief, we shed more tears because of our afflictions than because of our sins. That's natural to us. You know why? Because for us, practically, experientially, without even noticing, and unconsciously, we think that there is more evil in suffering than there is evil in sin. For us, many times in our lives, thoughts and actions, a hell of suffering is infinitely worse than sin. And meditating upon this command of James, I think that there, that's the reason why several times in our troubles, it is inconceivable to rejoice in suffering. It doesn't cross our minds that these things are related, suffering and sin and holiness. Suffering is the worst thing in the world for us, worse than sin. But if we reason biblically, like the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Evil of Evils, he says that sin is infinitely worse than a hell of suffering. And I think that is biblical. And if we reason like that, we can start to understand what James is commanding us to do. If we understand that the smallest, think about that, the smallest sin imaginable is more evil in that sin 
then the greatest suffering that you can think of, then we are open to understand what it means to rejoice and be joyful in trials. Okay, but why? Because you will see that God has a reason in this tiny evil called suffering in our Christian life. That's the second point, the argument of the text. Verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you have that attitude to have joy in your trials. Why? What is the reason? Because your suffering has a reason or purpose to test your faith and make you a mature Christian lacking nothing. That's it. Suffering is testing your faith so that you may endure and with endurance you may lack nothing. So that you may be a mature Christian and because of that you are growing holiness, you are killing sin, you are mortifying the flesh through suffering, growing in faith and perseverance in being more like your master Jesus. That's your main goal, main reason that God uses suffering to be more like your master in holiness. That's why you rejoice in trials. Let me try to explain this to you through a lesson from the Bible. Have you noticed that in the Bible, God often sends blessings as curse to the wicked and unbeliever and sends curses as blessings to believers? God gives prosperity, I'm not saying always, but he does when he wants. He gives prosperity, success, good health to the unbeliever. And when he wants, he gives troubles, hardship, affliction, loss to the believer. Why? Isn't it the famous question in the Psalms? Why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 73, for example. Why? Because often, not saying always, but yeah, God can do that. Often blessings become curses, and curses become blessings. Again, do you know why? One of the reasons is this. Because the more God gives goods, success, power, influence, money to the wicked. The tendency is that the more he, is, he or she is distant and far away from the most important and greatest good of the universe, God himself. And the more God gives sufferings, trials, afflictions, pain, loss to the true believer, 
the more he or she seeks God, the more he or she is dependent on God, the more he or she treasures God, the more he or she has God in his life or her life. You see, it is just uh, almost like what my mom used to do with me when I was in school, when I was a kid, little kid. In my homeland, uh, the main meal is at noon. And uh, school starts at 7 and ends 11.30 for kids, 11. And then we go home to have our main meal. And my mom did not let me to bring snacks and chocolates and candies to school. So that when I got home, I would eat a good and rich and nutrients meal. It was hard as a little kid for me. Yeah, I suffered in that sense. I really wanted to eat candy like everybody else, you know, a little of candy or chocolate. But my mom knew that the candies and the junky food would rob me from the great meal that would really feed me and give me the right nutrients for my growth as a kid. Can you see the analogy? So also the prosperity of this world can work in the same way. They just give you a temporary and fake sense of satisfaction. But like the junky food, they rob your soul from having the good nutrients that the real meal would give you. They keep you from the great banquet. Or they can keep you from the great banquet. God himself. You see the point? While the suffering and the trials are hard to deal with, they show you where your faith really is. Oh, it does. The trial does. Oh, it opens up our hearts to see where our hope, our faith, our dreams, our reason in life, our meaning in life is. It really does. They show that your hunger and your satisfaction is in God and not in the things in this world, ultimately. And therefore, you endure and you grow in grace and you become more mature and therefore, you rejoice. You see? On one hand, you see that sin has more evil than suffering. And on the other hand, you see that this tiny evil in suffering has a purpose to make you grow in faith in God. You many times go through suffering, not because you have sinned in the past. But like Job, many times you go through trials so that you can kill sin in sanctification, to try your faith to be more like Jesus. To grow in grace. And therefore you rejoice. And maybe you are listening to this and saying all that. 
I already knew all of that. The problem is when trial comes, when the problem arrives, when the difficulty knocks on my door, I do not know how to apply what James just said. That's the difficulty. I have tried many times, but when the trouble appears, then I do not know how to face it, how to handle it with joy. One thing is to speak about it. Another thing is to live it out. It's another, it is another thing. Then you lack, and I lack something, right? Then we both, we all are lacking something. You see in verse 4, it says that so that you may lack nothing. Lacking in nothing. But then when you go to verse 5, you see the same word. If any of you lacks, you see there? See the connection with verse 4 and 5? You have the attitude of joy in trials because trials have the ability or the purpose to make you more like Jesus, lacking nothing. But if you do, and what is it that you do? The wisdom to face it. Then what do you do? You saw the attitude to have joy in trials because of your purpose to be more like Christ. And third, the approach. When you lack the wisdom. So it says in verse 5 through 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is the approach? Ask for wisdom with faith. That's the approach. That is how you'll be able to be joyful in the midst of your trial. And God will answer your prayer. He's saying, be like Solomon and ask for wisdom and God will grant you that. But notice something very important in the text that we cannot miss. The text doesn't say that God will solve your problem. The text doesn't say that your problem will go away. It doesn't say that at all. James says that in your suffering, like we saw this morning, in your suffering, not out of your suffering, but in your suffering, God will give you wisdom to face it. And it's a promise. And what a promise this is. But there's one condition. You must ask it with faith, without double-mindedness. You know what that is, double-mindedness? It's a loyalty language. It's a loyalty issue. He's going to use the same word, double-minded man, in chapter 4, verse 8, when he's talking about people who say that they worship God, but are, but are going to bed with false idols. People who say with their lips 
They, they belong to God, but at the same time, are laying down with false gods. And again, you see that this approach makes us see that suffering strips our hearts bare before God and ourselves. It really does. It strips our hearts to see where our hearts really is and to whom it belongs. To God alone or to the things of this world. When you are under pressure, going through the furnace, in trial, you cannot hold it in. It has to come out and it will be shown to you and to God where your hope, faith, love, security really are. If your faith is in God and in your father at the same time, in God in money at the same time, in God in your strength at the same time, in God in your wisdom at the same time, in God in your experience at the same time, in God in the state at the same time, in God in your superstition at the same time, in God in your education at the same time, in God in your land at the same time. No. No double-mindedness like the wave of the sea going back and forth. Your ultimate trust, your ultimate hope, your ultimate confidence is in God alone to use whatever instrument He wants to use for your glory, His glory. It can be family, it can be money, it can be anything. But there's just secondary, ultimately in your heart. When you don't have those things, it will show where your hope really is. And for that reason, the approach is to ask for wisdom because we don't have it. Naturally. When things hit really hard, uh, we don't know what to do. Oh, how much we need to go to our closets and have the approach of prayer asking for wisdom and praying just like the psalmists, like they did, right? Just you and God, nobody else, in tears, even in despair, in asking and struggling and saying, how long, oh Lord, how long? Because I cannot stand anymore. It's too heavy for me, this burden. I cannot carry it. I don't know what to do. I don't know why you are, going, are doing this to me. Please help me how long, because I cannot go anywhere else but you. Where can I go? To be just like Jacob, I will not let you go. I will wrestle with you here in prayer and faith, asking for wisdom. I will not let you go unless you bless me with wisdom. Yes, you put it out, your lament, your despair. 
That's the approach. That's where you go to. That you, that's where you run after. To your God in prayer. Depending upon him alone. So you face your trials, Christian. With perseverance until the end. With the attitude of joy. Why? Because of the argument that through trials, you will be more like your master. Therefore, you rejoice. With the approach of prayer asking for wisdom without double-mindedness. And fourth and lastly, it will give us archetypes, case studies, samples, examples, for all of us. He will apply now in a specific example of this truth that we just heard. Verses 9 through 11. And then we will be over. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the, run, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You see the paradox? The humble, the poor, the lowly, he is exalted. Why? Because he has nothing here. His faith, his hope, his kingdom from above. As you see in chapter 2, verse 5, says so clearly to us, listen, my beloved brothers, verse 5 of chapter 2, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's the poor believer. Has nothing here everything in God's kingdom. That's why he is exalted. But on the other hand, the rich is poor. The rich who is not a believer, who does not have God in Christ, he may have everything. At the same time, he has nothing. What is the lesson then? This. Two situations, rich and poor. Two conditions, prosperity and poverty. And here's the principle in this case study. In any situation or condition you might find yourself into, you are being tested. Do you listen? Are you listening to this application? Either in success or in failure, either in wealth or in loss, you will face trial and you will not be the same. In whatever situation you are into, you will change either for better as a Christian or for worse. When a tsunami of problems arrives, either you will be saved in the ship 
or you will sink in the water, but you will not stay the same. In whatever situation you are into, up or down, success or failure, for example, in wealth, more responsibility, more worries, more anxiety, more problems to have a solution. In fact, there's more fights in rich families than solution because of money. Instead of joy, it produces what? Pride because of the riches. Yes, it will refine it. Try your faith to see if your security, if your worth, if your identity, if your beauty are in God or in money. It will show you if you have wisdom. You see how beautiful this literature is? He's applying what he just taught. It will show you if you have wisdom to consider everything as flowers of grass. Not only those stuff, but you. You see it in the text. It's not your money that will be like grass or flowers. The one day it's there, it's gone. Like here in the fall, right? A week ago, it was so beautiful. Now everything is on the ground. It's not the stuff that one day you have it. It's gone another day. It's you. We are just like this. Kids, that's so true. It was like yesterday. I was just 12 years old. Play around. Playing soccer and everything. Now I have five kids. It's a blink of an eye. You are going. There's no glory in that. It will fade away. And it will reveal where your faith really is. But in poverty, it's the same thing, isn't it? Deaths, nakedness, hunger, sickness, loneliness. These things, instead of joy, produce bitterness, anger, frustration, self-pity, indifference, violence. They can do that. And it will try and refine your faith to see if your worth, your security, your identity, and your greatness are dependent on your hope for money. Or in God alone. See, it's the same thing. Rich people and poor people. In that perspective, they are the same. If they have their hearts upon money, in money. If their treasure is God or not. If it is God, what a joy. Then James concludes in verse 12 that says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see the same words that you find in verse 2 and 3 and 4. I think it's a conclusion of this part of the letter. Let me conclude asking some questions, probing questions. So don't think about anybody else. The person on your side or your neighbor, your dear ones. And oh, I, oh, I would love that person to listen to this. No, it's you and me. 
Don't think about anybody else. And try to answer those questions in your own mind based on this verse 12. Do you want to be happy, blessed, rewarded, endure the test and receive the crown of life at the end? Do you long for that? Do you desire that? Do I long for that? Then let me ask you this. Do you or do I love the Lord? Do you really love God? Do you love Him more than your life? Do I? Do you? Do you love God so much that you find, you love Him so much that you have ability to find joy even in the midst of your worst suffering? Because He is with you. Do you love God so much that you are able to think that sin is worse than a hell of suffering? Do I? Do you? Do you love God so much that you can call a curse a blessing? Ultimately, like Joseph, you tended evil to me, but God intended for my good. Do you have that ability to sing with the psalmist of Psalm 23 that the goodness of God and his mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, even if I go to the valley of shadow of death? Do you love God so much that you spend time with him in prayer, in struggling, fighting with him in faith? Do you? Do you love God so much that in any situation or circumstance you are faithful so that no matter where you are, up or down, rich or poor, you cling to him? Do I? Do you? Do you love him with all your soul, heart, and mind? Is God your joy? Is God my love? Because I'm convinced that with love, you will be able to face any trial until the end with perseverance, with joy. Do you know why? Not because of your love or effort to love God by yourself. Because tonight, you and I, we must repent. Because we do not have that kind of love in ourselves. That's the law bringing us down. Humbling us. Showing us that we lack so many things. 
but I don't want you to go home destroyed by the law. I want you to go home raised up, risen of the grace of the gospel. Because if you are down now, let me tell you this, the good news. With love, you can face anything. Not your love, but the God who loved you, who loves you. Because Jesus loved you first. Look to Jesus, Christian. Look to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the text says almost the same words that you have, that you have here in James. You remember? Hebrews 2, 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of what? Of our faith that are being tested. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who? For what? Who for what? Who for the joy that was set before him? He what? He endured. He persevered. He was faithful and endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look unto him. Because of the joy. What joy? For sure the joy of God the Father. For, for sure the, the, the joy of God the Spirit. But for sure as well, you, Christian, you are his joy. For the joy you, he endured, he persevered, he was steadfast and endured the cross, the worst trial ever imaginable that you can think of. He loved you so much that he found joy in the most painful trial ever imagined. He loved you so much, Christian, that on the cross, your sin on him was worse than a hell of suffering. He loved you so much that on the cross, the curse literally became a blessing to you. He loved you so much that any circumstance or situation in heaven or in hell on that cross, he was faithful because he loved you. With an eternal love. If you see his love for you like that, you will love him back. And imperfectly, for sure. But you will believe in verse 12, and that promise will be yours. That says in verse 12, Blessed is the man and the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those, to those who love him. Why? Because he loved him and her first in Christ. That's the gospel. The sheer grace. Go home. Face your trials with perseverance until the end, with the attitude of joy, with the reason and the argument that you'll be more like your master, struggling with the approach of praying every day with him, asking for wisdom. 
and knowing that it doesn't matter up or down, rich or poor, in any situation, you will cling to him. Why? Because he did all of that. Because you were his joy. He endured the cross to have you back. What a savior. Look to him. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Christ. Without him, we are nothing. And with him, we have everything. With Christ, a dungeon is a throne. Without him, a kingdom is hell. He is everything to us. So please help us to have that in mind every day of our lives, to live for your glory. In Jesus' name.